from PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we visit our archives from 2012 for an interview with Todd Green about Islamophobia, the fear of Islam in America. Later on the broadcast, Hollis Phelps offers a review of Mike Huckabee's new book, God, Guns, Grits, and Gravy. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. With the start of the new year, we've begun making our shows available on PRX, the public radio exchange. That's an exciting move for us, and it means that there's a chance that our show might be picked up by a programming director here and there and actually broadcast on an NPR station. That also means that we've updated the format of our show to be more radio-friendly again after a couple of years of being podcast-friendly. So over the next few months, we'll be updating our back catalog of shows to fit this new PRX format. And I'm happy that this week's show is going to kick off that upgrade process. So this is a show that we originally aired very early in our run back in 2012, back when we were still on KWAM News Talk 990 in Memphis. We're speaking with Todd Green. He's a professor of religious history at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, When we spoke back in 2012, Professor Green had been writing articles for the Huffington Post and other online sources about the fear of Islam, Islamophobia, in America. Since our interview with Professor Green, he's gone on to write a book on the subject, The Fear of Islam, An Introduction to Islamophobia in the West, which is due to be published by Fortress Press in May of 2015. In fact, as I'm recording this introduction, Professor Green is leading a study abroad trip for Luther College students in Europe to study Islamophobia on the continent. The very day Professor Green arrived with his students in Europe, the office of Charlie Hebdo, the satirical publication in Paris, was attacked, with 12 persons killed by militants who claimed to be allied with a radical sect of Islam. Needless to say, in light of all the events, it seemed like a moment to hear Professor Green's voice again on the show. I hope that we can book him for an actual interview to talk about his recent experiences in Europe very soon. For now, though, I hope that you enjoy this episode from the Things Not Seen archives from back in 2012. Todd Green, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start off today by uh, reading a, a short piece from an August 2010 article by Lori Goodstein. It appeared in the New York Times. The article has a quotation from a woman named Diana Serafin, and Diana Serafin says, As a mother and a grandmother, I worry. I learned that in 20 years, with the rate of the birth population, we will be overtaken by Islam, and their goal is to get people in Congress and the Supreme Court and to see that Sharia law is implemented. My children and grandchildren will have to live under that. I do believe everybody has the right to freedom of religion, But Islam is not about a religion. It is a political government, and it's 100% against the Constitution. So I wonder, Todd Green, what is your reaction when you hear statements like Diana Serafin's? My initial reaction is there's nothing to worry about. Um, I don't know that would be much comfort to her to hear that from me, but um, in many ways that very sentiment uh, does resonate with what many of us as scholars would would call Islamophobia, which is not necessarily my uh, attempt to to pronounce some sort of ethical condemnation against her, but more of a sense of a larger phenomena where there is sort of an, an irrational worry or concern about uh, Islam, about its presence in the United States or in Europe, about this idea that it will take over, uh, that Muslims are out to take over uh, the West, uh, to conquer the West in, in more of a political sense, that Islam is not really a religion which always has sort of the undertone of, therefore, we need not treat it 
uh, as a religion, we need to respond to it in a very different way and not according to, say, the First Amendment. Well, when you use this term, Islamophobia, is that a settled term? Do folks agree what that term means, or is there a debate about what that term means uh, in the public in the public arena right now? Yeah, there is a debate. There's a deba- debate in public, and there's even, for those of us who are scholars of this, there is a debate over how you define Islamophobia, well, you know, what exactly... Uh, are we talking about it, a brief history? Islamophobia, as a as as a term that entered into political and public discourse, dates back actually to the late 90s. There was a, uh, a think tank in in Britain uh, called the Runnymede Trust, and it uh, issued a report in 1997 on Islamophobia, and that's when the f- term first really came into you know uh, common discourse. There's some instances of the term going back to the early 20th century, but that's when it was really introduced into debates about the presence of Islam and Muslims within the West, and in that case, within Britain. And the Runnymede Trust has sort of set the tone in terms of the definition uh, for Islamophobia, even if there are a lot of people who want to pick at it and, 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 and hack away at it and nuance it and, and, and in some cases just, just, just reject it altogether. But uh, the Runnymede Trust uh, defined Islamophobia as a worldview uh, involving an unfounded dread and dislike of Muslims, uh, which results in practices of exclusion and discrimination. That's kind of its its package definition. And then it goes on to define eight components or manifestations of Islamophobia, and I don't need to list all of those for you, but they include Islam being monolithic, uh, Islam is incompatible with and inferior to the West, Islam is backwards, inferior, um, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, that's the, the kind of classic definition. Uh, but there is debate, and, and the, the debate is over whether when we're talking about undreaded or, or a, an unfounded dread of Islam or a, a fear of Islam, or are we actually talking about fear of a religion? Uh, some would say, is this really more xenophobia uh, in, in the case of Europe or uh, anti-immigration in the case of Europe? Is this a, a case of racism? Uh, and that's sort of where the debate uh, tends to, to revolve around, is how do we sort of uh, disentangle these uh, different strands. And my own opinion, David, is that uh, I would not draw a very sharp distinction between fear of Islam as an ideology and fear of Islam in terms of the racial component. I think they're actually uh, combined in in the perception of many Westerners. Islam is racialized, uh, if I can use that word, and uh, and it's not easy to disentangle fear of Muslims in terms of their religious convictions and fear of Muslims because uh, of a racial uh, identity. If you're just tuning in, uh, we're talking with Todd Green, professor from Luther College, and we're discussing the topic of Islamophobia. Well, and you, you defined a moment ago Islamophobia as an unfounded fear. There are those in the public discourse, I'm sure, who would disagree and say, no, no, we have good reasons to fear Muslims. And some of those are what you said, the, the, the arguments for it being sort of a, a monolithic uh, structure, a structure that is trying to gain political hegemony. Um, do those do those counter arguments have any credence in your opinion, or how would you argue against them if you don't feel that they have credence? Yes, in, in many ways, you, you can kind of go one by one. What is it uh, that's actually being uh, said about Islam? Is it anti-democratic? Uh, is it prone to violence? Inherently misogynist? And, and we can certainly go one by one with those if you wanted to. Generally speaking, though, my my response is: Where does the information, and I'll use that word a bit loosely, the information about Islam come from in the West and come from in Europe and come from in the United States and Canada. Uh, what is it we know about Islam, and, and where do we get our knowledge? Uh, is this from uh, you know, detailed study of this religious tradition? Is it from reading sacred texts out of Islam, the Quran and the Hadith? Uh, is this from encountering Muslims and engaging in deep, rich conversation, interfaith dialogue with Muslims, or does our information about Islam or our perceptions of Islam, are they coming from elsewhere? Are they coming from the media and and how the media chooses to cover stories pertaining to Islam? Does it come from politicians uh, uh, who have maybe another agenda when it comes to the way they uh, construct or uh, talk about Islam? And that's my general response uh, to, to that query. Well, what would be the advantages politically to constructing Islam in the way that you've characterized, sort of as a, 
as a, a, a shadowy figure that haunts the West? Why why would why would uh, politicians and others choose to construe Islam in that way? What what advantage would they gain? Yeah, and it may depend upon the politicians and and the part of of the West we're talking about, and uh, whether we're talking about radical right parties and and Europe, which have a history of of racism, uh, initially anti-Semitism, and then has, that has become more Islamophobic in recent decades, uh, and where they have tended to have marginal political power, uh, although that's been changing a little bit in Europe, versus the United States. So uh, it depends upon what side of the Atlantic we're on. If we're talking about the United States, uh, I tend to agree with those who would suggest that there's always uh, a need to shore up support for a, a specific imperial enterprise. You know, there, there is a empire, if you will, that the United States is engaged in building and, and constructing and maintaining um, that's not to say that there aren't legitimate threats to the United States in terms of security that, that uh, politicians must address. But the way that that is done in terms of how Islam is constructed uh, leads you to wonder uh, what exactly is driving this in terms of political gain. Uh, what, what gain might politicians have by creating an, a Muslim enemy? Professor Green, could you explain for our listeners what the term Sharia law means? In short, the word Sharia, uh, the, the quickest way to translate that it would mean the way. Uh, Sharia is the way, or the, some have called it the way to the watering hole, but it's, it's a, a way of a blueprint, really, for Muslims in terms of how they orient their lives. Uh, and it's very broad, and um, uh, a lot of misconceptions in the West among non-Muslims when it comes to what exactly is uh, Sharia law, but generally it is a blueprint for how Muslims are to, uh, to live their lives. Well, there have been many attempts on uh, the part of state legislatures to enact laws to ban Sharia law. And are the attempts to pass legislation restricting or banning Sharia law effective or or a waste of legislative time, in your opinion? Uh, At best, they're a waste of legislative time uh, because they're redundant. Um, And at worst, they actually tend to believe this myself, they are prime examples of political Islamophobia. Uh, on the former point, uh, what I would like to say is that um, constitutional law always trumps uh, any sort of application to international law to begin with. So yes, uh, whether it's foreign law, whether it's Sharia, international law, whatever, uh, when applying that, uh, U.S. courts always do so within the, the framework of the Constitution. So, so there's, there's no way that uh, a, a precept within Sharia law would ever trump constitutional law to begin with. So then creating uh, you know, an anti-Sharia, uh, you know, legislation uh, is is at best redundant. But let's be honest about what's really going on here. These aren't innocent attempts to make sure that American courts sort of maintain, you know, a steady line in terms of interpreting the Constitution. These are uh, a political moves. Uh, they actually have their origins in a very conservative think tank called the Center for Security Policy, uh, and, and a Brooklyn-based lawyer who who has really generated a lot of the language used in this legislation in almost two dozen states, going back to Oklahoma, uh, I believe was the first state to try this in, in, uh, in 2010. Uh, but this is used in part because to get on the anti-Sharia bandwagon, David, is to score political points. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back to an archive interview from 2012 with our guest, Professor Todd Green of Luther College. We're discussing Islamophobia, the fear of Islam in the West. We'll be back in a moment. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes Store. And while you're there, we'd love if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful in helping us. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes Store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review for us and give us a rating. That is unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. And thank you, as always, for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. 
We're listening back to an archive interview from 2012 with our guest, Professor Todd Green of Luther College. We're discussing Islamophobia, the fear of Islam in the West. So one of the characterizations uh, that I've encountered when I've been researching this uh, is the fear that Sharia law will somehow be enacted in our courts or will somehow begin to affect the U.S. legal system. Uh, is that a is that a legitimate fear, or is is are we talking about something different when we're talking about Sharia law than something that would be applicable in U.S. courts? Well, uh, the truth is, David, that uh, the courts for some decades have been uh, interpreting and applying Sharia law uh, in certain contexts. Uh, marriage, divorce, family law is one great example of that. Um, so that's not particularly new. Uh, in a globalized age that we live in, uh, it's, it's incumbent upon uh, American courts to interpret uh, what we might broadly call international law, foreign law, whatever. Um, and this can, this can you know, boil down to uh, corporations and, and debates and, and lawsuits between American and foreign corporations to, in, in the cases like this, uh, family matters um, when it comes to Sharia law. So it's already been happening, and uh, there's been no takeover. It's it's just uh, it's a part of uh, how law, law uh, uh, the American law and how courts uh, go about doing their job. But it's there's also a lot of misconceptions about you know what it what it is when we're talking about Sharia law uh, and uh, what that word sort of the connotation that that word really has uh, for a lot of people because it's connected again to that construct construct of Islam as not a religion but an, a political ideology that is there to take over, uh, to take over the United States, to take over the West, and therefore Sharia must be this tool uh, to do that. But uh, Sharia law is actually very complicated. It's, uh, it's uh, the, the body of law, it's history, the schools of interpretation. There are four general schools in Sunni Islam in terms of how you interpret uh, Sharia law, its application, how different Muslim-majority countries sort of understand Sharia law and apply it, which is actually very diverse, and the understanding of how do you follow Sharia law if you're a, a part of a Muslim minority community in, in Europe or in North America. Uh, in the general uh, approach by Muslims, both in the United States and in much of Europe, uh, is that when you are a part of a minority community, you follow the laws of the land. So you follow the laws of the United States. So there's, there's no fear from Muslims in terms of their idea that they're trying to take over because that is not part of what Sharia means to many Muslims in the West uh, to begin with. So if I hear you correctly, this is not a grassroots movement against Sharia law. Instead, if I've heard you correctly, this is a coordinated effort by one uh, arm of, of the political right to gain political capital from uh, from fears of of Muslim encroachment, am I hearing you right? Yes, you are hearing me correctly. This is this this is an orchestrated attempt. The, much of the language, if you actually look at the the language of the legislation in many of these states, it's very very similar. A lot of it has its source in one lawyer. I believe his name is. Uh, you can correct me if I'm mispronouncing this. David Yeroshami, uh, but based in Brooklyn, um, and and he is sort of the, the mastermind behind this movement and helping to craft some of this original language. Now, the language has had to change a little bit because in some of the earlier state legislation that was more anti-Sharia, Sharia wasn't actually named in the legislation, but then there have been some concerns that uh, that might be sort of unjustly targeting a religious community. So, so the language more recently, including the law that, that uh, the governor in Kansas just signed, uh, it, it has been referring more broadly to foreign law, uh, but but the target is still the Muslim community and Islam, and it's still yeah, it's a political it's a political move, and in many of these states, it's a winning political move, and it's independent of whether a there is a threat, and b whether any of the people who are pr- proposing this legislation actually know anything about Sharia law. That the the uh, member of the Alabama state legislature who who proposed that law when asked later. Um, by the media, what exactly is Sharia law? He couldn't respond. He didn't. He said, "I don't have my notes with me right now. I can't can't answer that question." Uh, so he has introduced legislation to ban Sharia law, and yet he doesn't even know what Sharia law is. That's to me very telling about what this movement really is all about. Professor Green, you were trained as a historian, but you mainly focused on the development of Christianity. 
But for the past several years, your main focus has been on Islam, particularly Islam in Europe. What caused that shift in focus? No, it's a good question. I, I started uh, in terms of my research uh, as a scholar of secularization. So I'm a, I'm a modern European religious historian by training, uh, particularly 19th uh, century onward. And my starting point in terms of research was the decline of religion in, in, in terms of its influence in modern Europe and what the causes might be, particularly Christianity because of its dominance in European history. Uh, what sort of drives that decline? Um, is that decline all it's made out to be? Is it sometimes over-exaggerated? Um, uh, the difference between the, a decline in the influence of religion and a change in religiosity and that sort of stuff. That's where I started, and, uh, and I still have a lot of interest in that, but that's also the platform upon which I sort of pivoted, if you will, um, to, to study uh, Islam in Europe. Um, if so much is made about secularization in Europe, and, and many Americans typically just dismiss Europe as secular, you know, it's, it's, uh, religion doesn't matter so much there anymore, and that there's this, really this secularization narrative, as I call it, that has really uh, come to frame modern European religious history, that the only important thing to talk about in modern Europe when it comes to religion is how it's been declining. Um, but, of course, the more you study this, the more you realize, well, not all religious communities are declining. Uh, in fact, Muslim communities in, in Europe have been growing and growing significantly for some decades now. And so I became very interested in sort of the presence uh, of, uh, of a more vibrant religious community uh, in the midst of what some have called the absence or the increasing absence of religion and, and sort of the tension between uh, religion sort of withdrawing from the public sphere when we're talking about Christianity versus uh, the growth and increasing visibility of Islam in the public sphere in much of Europe and, and how that has sort of challenged Europe's uh, secular identity. Well, let's stay with Europe for a moment. Um, in 2009, a law was passed in Switzerland that bans the construction of minarets. So first of all, could you explain to our listeners, what is a minaret? A minaret, in short, is a, is a prayer tower. In many Muslim-majority countries, these are the towers attached to or that, that stand beside mosques uh, from which you would hear the call to prayer in Arabic uh, issued from them. Uh, in many European countries, uh, you will not hear the call to prayer from a minaret. Um, if a minaret exists at all in a mosque, it's often ornamental, so it, it may look a, have a little bit more of a of an, of an aesthetic sort of purpose, but uh, not so, it will not function in quite the same way as you would find in many Muslim-majority countries. Well, is this 2009 Swiss law significant in any way to our American listeners? Should they be concerned about it? Should it be... Uh, something that they should be aware of or discuss? Well, it's certainly significant in several ways. First, um, in terms of freedom of religion, you know, the, given that the United States, like Europe as a whole, really, most West European countries in, in, in the modern era really uh, want to articulate a commitment to uh, freedom of religion, free exercise of religion is the language we use in the United States, that uh, uh, specific religious communities will not be targeted or uh, discriminated against, or restricted in terms of their ability to practice their religion freely. And to the extent that banning the construction of minarets, when you're not doing that, uh, anything comparable with other religious communities in Switzerland, is a violation of freedom of religion and free exercise of religion, and what I would also then, by extension, say violation of human rights, then yes, American listeners uh, and Americans, generally speaking, should be very uh, concerned about what happened in Switzerland and about other moves in certain parts of Europe when it comes to restricting the uh, uh, free exercise of religion for Muslim minority communities. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're listening back to an archived interview from 2012 with Todd Green, professor of religious history at Luther College. We're talking about Islamophobia. If you're interested in finding out more about Todd Green's forthcoming book, The Fear of Islam, An Introduction to Islamophobia in the West, you can visit our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you'd like to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. That's D-A-U-L-T, radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. 
Back now to our interview with Todd Green. We have recent examples here in the United States of building sites by Muslims being obstructed as well, either by legal means or through vandalism or through other means. The first one that I have in mind and want to ask you about is the so-called Ground Zero Mosque in New York City. If you could, please briefly explain that controversy and what that space should mean to our listeners. Well, the controversy is interesting, and there actually are some parallels to Europe um, with, with this. Uh, there's some differences as well, but, but some of the parallels are quite eerie. But the, the controversy began in 2010, um, uh, and I think it was May of 2010, when a couple of bloggers uh, for an organization that's very Islamophobic called Stop Islamization of America, uh, and their names are Pamela Geller and Robert Spencer, they really brought to national attention uh, the proposal of a uh, development uh, firm in New York City to to build an Islamic center just a few blocks from Ground Zero, uh, the Soho Properties and its CEO Sharif El Gamal purchased uh, the building, uh, and I believe December of 2009, and Muslims had already been gathering there in terms of of, of prayer, led by Imam uh, Faisal Abdul Rauf. But it's in, it's in the spring of 2010 that this uh, is brought to national attention. And then there's the, the huge controversy in the course of the summer of 2010 and into the fall over whether there should be a mosque, as that was called uh, by, by uh, many opponents, uh, a mosque near Ground Zero, the so-called Ground Zero Mosque. And so that's sort of the, the origins of the debate, whether this was sacred ground, uh, whether this was insensitive on the part of Muslims, whether uh, they had the right to do so, that was the initial sort of language. Eventually, that shifted into they might have the First Amendment right, but they but it's not right ethically, uh, and, and that was an interesting evolution in the debate itself. But the the idea behind the proposed Islamic center was really to create something of a uh, something on the model of a Jewish community center, or in, in their minds, the 92nd Street YMCA in Manhattan, uh, to have a space certainly for Muslim worship, but it would be a multi faith center. Uh, it would uh, be open to the, the public. It would be a way of sort of building a bridge between uh, Islam and, and the Muslim community there in lower Manhattan and the, and the, and the larger community. So that's sort of the, the origins and the, and the uh, evolution of that debate, at least. You mentioned the organization Stop Islamicization of America, and that the name of that organization is interesting to me. In 2007, the Pew Research Forum conducted a landmark survey that measured religion in American public life, and one of their findings was that Muslims, and this includes all forms of Muslims, including the majority sort of uh, Sunni and Shia, that Muslims as a whole make up less than 1% of the total U.S. population, 0.6% uh, to be exact in 2007. So with numbers that small, why do you think then that there is such a fear in the U.S. about political Islam, Muslims taking over, and the so-called Islamicization of America? That is the the, uh, the grand question, isn't it? I think this goes back uh, to the beginning of our conversation when uh, we were talking about the Runnymede Report in Britain in 1997 that had that basic definition of Islamophobia as an unfounded, you know, fear and dread of, of Muslims and of Islam. You know, um, this is not all about reason, and it's certainly not about facts. You know, I and I've certainly encountered this in my own conversations with folks about Islamophobia, writing about it, uh, getting uh, feedback from the general public, some of it not always pleasant. <laughs> uh, but you, you can quote statistics all day long, but uh, it, it won't necessarily undermine uh, the, the sort of Islamophobic atmosphere that exists sometimes. But you're, you're right. Your information is correct. Um, it, if we updated those numbers in the Pew Research Center in 2010, they estimated there was about 2.6 million Muslims. That would be about 0.8% of the population. I've encountered some estimates, David, that are higher. Um, John Esposito of, of uh, Georgetown University has estimated that there might be as many as six to eight million Muslims. I think that's a pretty high estimate, but you know, let's say we go with that. that we're still talking about two, three percent tops of the population. Uh, you know, we're a far cry from Muslims taking over anything. They're not in a position to take over anything. They're are very much a minority community. If we go with a Pew Center, they're less than 1% of the population. So when we talk about Sharia law taking over, uh, Islam as bent on, uh, on a conquest of the United States from within, sort of a Trojan horse theory, uh, nothing really substantiates that. And yet these movements, uh, 
these Islamophobic organizations, uh, this anti-Sharia legislation, these mosque controversies continue to perpetuate this narrative that uh, Islam is here to take over the United States, to take over our values, to take away our freedom uh, and liberty, and so on and so forth. And, and it really is a narrative that has become way disconnected and, and unanchored from reality. Well, as a minority religion, then, that is under assault from legislators and on the political front, how are Muslim communities responding? Uh, are they engaging in acts of civil disobedience? Are they trying to enact legislation of their own? Is there a coordinated response? It, it, there's a diversity of responses in many cases, but it's very tricky. Um, I, I noted this back during the Ground Zero controversy. Uh, what was interesting, David, about the way that was covered um, and, and about who spoke for Muslims in that, in that case was oftentimes not only those, of course, critiquing uh, the Islamic Center, the proposed Islamic Center near Ground Zero, people like Newt Gingrich, for example, or, or Sarah Palin, uh, who spoke out strongly against it, uh, yeah, maybe we expect that. Uh, but the allies who spoke out in defense of this proposed Islamic Center, uh, none of these were Muslim. Uh, and it sort of raised in my own mind an interesting issue that it, oftentimes when there's a lot of controversy pertaining to the presence of Muslim minority communities, the free exercise of religion, constructing of mosques, following Sharia law or whatever, um, uh, in public discourse, it's often non-Muslims who sort of take on the role of spokespersons uh, for Muslim communities. Mayor Bloomberg is the example of that in, in New York City in the case of Ground Zero. Uh, I, in the fall of 2010, I was asked by a Muslim student association at a, a Midwestern university to come facilitate a conversation about the Ground Zero controversy. But it, I couldn't help but find the irony in that, that they asked me, the Muslim community of that university asked me, to come speak and facilitate uh, that conversation. Um, Do you feel that that puts you somehow in an ethical dilemma, or at, did you find did you find difficulty in in taking that role as spokesman? Did you speak about that when you were at the conference with regard to to that that tension? I did. I think it's important to point that out. Uh, I, I certainly didn't turn on the opportunity, and I recognized in many ways it was you know it was an honor certainly to be invited to do that, uh, and I interpreted as such. I, uh, my, uh, my hosts there, the Muslim Student Association, were very gracious. Um, uh, they were very thankful for, for the job I did when I did speak and when I did facilitate this campus-wide conversation for them. But yes, I, in any context like that, I feel that it is important to acknowledge that uh, I, A, am not a Muslim. I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not representative of Muslim communities in the United States. I'm a scholar, to be sure, and I identify myself as such, and someone who certainly, for a variety of personal reasons and interfaith commitments that I have, I, I have a vested interest in, in working with Muslim communities and helping to combat Islamophobia. But yes, uh, I want my audiences and, and I want the listeners uh, today, uh, David, to, to understand that, that there, there's something not quite right when the voices that will more likely be heard in terms of defending Muslim minority communities are not Muslim voices. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back to an archive interview from 2012 with our guest, Professor Todd Green of Luther College. We're discussing the fear of Islam in the West. We'll be back in a moment. If you haven't yet discovered our daily podcast, Religion Moments, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. They're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of the Religion Moments archived on our website. So even if you're just now starting to listen, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the entire catalog just like you were traveling back in time. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're re-airing an interview today that we did with Todd Green, who's a professor at Luther College. Before we left for the break, we were talking about the difficulty that Muslim voices have in breaking through the media landscape. So why is it difficult for Muslims to put forward their own spokespeople in situations like this? 
In some instances, they actually try to do so, and the media doesn't pick up on it or doesn't cover it. Uh, in other cases, I think it's a deliberate choice. Uh, my own sense in the Ground Zero controversy was that uh, you certainly had the most prominent Muslim in that controversy was uh, Imam Rauf, and he did not speak much to the media once that started. He eventually granted some interviews, but he, he was he was pretty uh, pretty quiet in terms of, of the initial phase of the controversy. Uh, but uh, my hunch, and that's all this is, is a hunch, is that uh, many Muslims, in, say in Europe, for example, made a conscious effort uh, and decision not to, to speak out and to allow Mayor Bloomberg and others to sort of represent them uh, as a sort of strategic move under the probably the conviction that his voice uh, would more likely be taken seriously than theirs. But that's not always the case, and that's not always the decision that is made. Uh, there, there are plenty of instances in which Muslim leaders do speak out and their their voices are not heard or the media doesn't find it particularly newsworthy. The, the, the best example I can think of in that case goes back to 9-11. Uh, sometimes the question is asked, why didn't Muslims uh, speak out more against 9-11, against al-Qaeda, against Osama bin Laden? And, uh, and David, uh, in short, they did. And there were many Muslims who spoke out uh, against what happened on 9-11 and spoke out very strongly. Uh, the real question is, why don't we know about it? You know, why do we have to go dig in and do a lot of research in order to find out where these public statements are? Because they were very public statements and made by Muslims in North America and in Europe and in Muslim-majority countries. Um, but there's a larger issue, there's a larger bias going on here in the media, I think, when it comes to uh, whose voices do you cover and whose you do not. Uh, or the way I frame the question, who speaks for Muslims in the United States and who speaks for Muslims in Europe? Even when Muslims are trying to speak for themselves, um, they're not always heard, and other strategies then have to be employed. Here in Tennessee, there have been similar controversies over the construction of a mosque in Murfreesboro, just south of Nashville. Opponents have resorted to all manner of legal blockages to halt progress on that project, and there has even been outright vandalism committed against the construction. Why is it in America, where we proclaim the ideals of religious freedom, that a building such as this causes such a reaction? It's a great question, uh, you know, that is very complicated in many ways. Uh, and there's uh, some ironies involved uh, in this particular controversy uh, and connections with it with other mosque controversies in the United States and in Europe. Uh, uh, the, um, the short answer would be Islamophobia itself, remember, uh, tends to be driven by this idea that Islam really isn't a religion to begin with. Uh, so one way to let people off the hook when it comes to expressing uh, concern, if not outright opposition, to a proposed mosque or the building of a mosque is to say, hey, that's okay, because this isn't a religion anyway. Uh, so if you're worried about you know, trying to maintain the Constitution, the First Amendment, you don't have to worry about that. The First Amendment applies to freedom of religion, and Islam is not a religion, it's a political ideology, it's spent on conquest. We can oppose that and still uphold our American values and our Constitution. In fact, that's supposed to be an expression of that. So that's some of the intellectual uh, maneuvers that sort of have to take place for this to happen in many ways. But the other irony, David, that I think is worth pointing out with the Murfreesboro case, that you actually will find in many mosque conflicts, on both sides of the Atlantic, is that there has been a Muslim community present in Murfreesboro worshiping for, for many decades. Uh, so, so it's not like we have a group of people who, who flew in from North Africa or the Middle East and just uh, a couple of years ago decided to build a mosque. Many of these are people who have been part of this community for a long time, some of whom are lifelong residents of the state of Tennessee, they have been worshiping in, in very cramped office space for some time, and the purpose of building this mosque is to, to have a larger worship space to accommodate the worshipers. Uh, you see this over and over again in mosque conflicts where mu the Muslim community in that particular locality has actually been there for some time, has actually been worshiping, but they haven't been worshiping in a very visible way. They've been out of sight, oftentimes in makeshift prayer rooms. Uh, in Europe, you can think of office spaces or apartment buildings or the back rooms of factories. Um, uh, and these are, uh, therefore, places that aren't readily visible to, to the average person on the street. When you build a mosque 
from scratch, a purpose-built mosque, as we call it, uh, all of a sudden your community becomes very visible. It becomes very present in a way that it has not been. And it's this, this transition from sort of the absence of the Muslim community in the sense that people don't see them worshiping or, 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 or see, see their community gathered like that to presence that tends to stimulate and serve as a catalyst for these controversies. And that is exactly what happened in Murfreesboro. This is not a new community. It's a new building. Well, and you raised a very interesting point right there, that in many cases we are not dealing with immigrant populations, right. but U.S. citizens, people who have been born here and raised here who happen to be Muslim. Correct. And yet the overwhelming perception uh, I portrayed in the media seems to be that Muslims are immigrants, that they are aliens among us, that somehow they are foreigners, even, even when they have multiple generations of American citizenship, that perception still lingers. Why is that? Yeah, this goes back again to the construction of Islam uh, by many in the West and Westerners, and this is this is not a new new uh, project, if you will. This goes back centuries. Uh, that you know, Islam is antith- antithetical to the West. It is it is a foreign. Uh, it is not like us. Uh, Muslims aren't us. Uh, so you know, being born in the United States uh, may almost be irrelevant if you are in, immersed in Islamophobia. Um, the idea of Islam itself is just, it's, it's incommensurable. It's, it's, it's not something that can be uh, harmonized with Western values, Western identity, uh, and dare I say, Western civilization. Uh, so to be Muslim is to be foreign. Uh, this goes back again to the complicated definition of Islamophobia. Is this a fear of a religion? Is it, is it racism? Is it xenophobia? You mentioned that you had been invited to the conversation about the Ground Zero Mosque. You've also been writing uh, articles for the Huffington Post over the last several years. I wonder, could you characterize the reactions you've gotten to those articles? Uh, Are the readers generally understanding of your attempts to clarify the issues about Islam, or are they hostile? Uh, Generally speaking, yeah, I've I've encountered some really harsh harsh um, uh, responses to some of my pieces. And sometimes readers will actually, you know, they'll look up my email address and email me. And uh, I've had letters sent to me, um, you know, really complaining about my ignorance of Islam, that you know, how, a scholar should, of all people, should know that what Islam really is, what the truth of Islam is. And, and I'm, for some reason, not speaking the truth of Islam. The most common complaint, David, I get, which to me is fascinating because I actually think it reinforces my, some of my points about Islamophobia, is I get criticized for what I didn't say, not always for what I did. Uh, I, can, I can write something about the, the Ground Zero controversy or, or about Anders Breivik in Norway last summer or whatever. Inevitably, a comment or a series of comments I will get will be, you should be more concerned, Professor Green, about all the violence that Muslims are committing. Why aren't you talking about that? Why aren't you talking about terrorism? You know, so they'll, they'll criticize me for what I did not write, not for what I did sometimes. But it's a reminder that uh, for those of us who weigh in on public discourse about Islam and want to talk about it, and what I'm doing today is talking about Islamophobia, uh, inevitably someone's going to respond, or a number of people will respond with, but he didn't talk about violence. He didn't talk about Muslim violence. He didn't talk about Islamic terrorism. Uh, and therefore, you know, how could, good could, could he be? <laughs> and that in itself is, is utterly fascinating. I could talk to you, David, for 30 minutes about Christianity and probably not get that kind of reaction because I didn't talk about Christian instances of violence. But I cannot talk 30 minutes about Islam without someone raising the question about what about Muslim violence, you know, even if that's not my topic. Uh, and that, to me, has been sort of the eye-opening part about writing for the Huffington Post in terms of the, uh, of the downsides. But I, I'm still committed to, to doing that kind of work and to doing public scholarship. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who read pieces like that, who don't you know, write on the comment sections at the bottom of the page, who find it very helpful. I have had Muslims, I had members of interfaith organizations write to me and thanking me for, for being willing to weigh in and put myself out there um, uh, as an ally. And that's what I see myself as in terms of uh, Islamophobia, as an ally to Muslim communities and trying to do what I can from the position I have uh, to help shape a public discourse, uh, hope, hope to improve it, and, and help people to ask better questions other than why are Muslims so violent, which oftentimes seems to be, for some of my audience, the only question they have in their mind. Well, Todd Green, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, David. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it.
We've been speaking today with Professor Todd Green. He teaches religious history at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. Now, this is an interview that we actually recorded back in 2012. But in light of the recent events in Europe, particularly the Charlie Hebdo uh, assassinations last week in Paris, we thought that this was a good time to revisit this interview and to talk about the fear of Islam in the West, Islamophobia. Professor Green has a new book coming out on that subject in May of 2015. If you'd like more information about that book or about Professor Green, you can go to thingsnotseenradio.com. And now we shift gears just a bit. Even though it's only just now 2015, the 2016 presidential race has begun. That means that would-be candidates are forming exploratory committees, putting out polling, starting the fundraising machinery, and writing books. A new publication gives the candidate something to stump about and a reason to make the rounds of the talk shows. It also allows for a laying out of the major ideas that will form the theme of their upcoming campaign. It's a time-honored practice. Our reviewer, Hollis Phelps, takes a look at one such book by a candidate who has thrown his hat into the ring on more than one occasion, Mike Huckabee. The new book is God, Guns, Grits, and Gravy. Former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee recently announced that he would be ending his popular Fox News talk show to feel out a possible presidential run. Huckabee ran in the Republican primaries in 2008 and considered it in 2012, and it's no secret that he still has an eye for the White House. Although he won't make a definitive decision until later in the spring, the announcement of his departure wasn't all that surprising. The news also felicitously coincides with the January 20th release of his new book, God, Guns, Grits, and Gravy. The book itself is a somewhat eclectic mix of off-color humor, moral outrage, social prescription, and standard conservative talking points, all wrapped up in Huckabee's well-known divine sense of mission. It's not much different content-wise than his now-defunct show, and it's not likely to have much appeal beyond its former viewers. The book is really written for them and the fellow travelers who constitute his base. All of which means, if he runs, Huckabee has every intent of exploiting through any means necessary the so-called culture wars for his benefit. The entire argument of the book, if one can even call it that, hinges on the ready-made dichotomy between what he calls Bubbaville and Bubbleville. That is, between those who apparently love God own guns, and relish their grits and gravy, and those who hate God want to take your guns away and eat arugula, to recall a trope from 2008. Liberal against conservative, urban against rural, Christian faith against secularism, government control against liberty, Hollywood elites against good old family values. Take your pick on the distinction. That's the story Huckabee wants to tell, and that's the story he hopes will sell well over the next year or so. And let me be clear, that's by no means a simplistic or uncharitable summary. It is the book. Which is unfortunate because it reads more like satire than serious, even when one takes into account what Huckabee's publisher, St. Martin's Press, refers to as his light-hearted yet bracingly realistic style. Frankly, the book sounds more like Stephen Colbert in character, and I don't mean that as a compliment, at least to Mike Huckabee. So when discussing the virtues of gun ownership, he notes that, and I'm quoting, the Second Amendment exists not so we can hoard guns, but so we can hoard liberty. Or when discussing so-called government overreach, he reminds us that too many Americans have, and I'm quoting again, been conditioned to just bend over and take it like a prisoner. I could multiply examples, but you get the point. The oddly self-referential, satirical nature of the book is perhaps reinforced by the fact that New Street Communications beat Huckabee to the punch and published months ago a book titled God, Guns, Grits, and Gravy, a Satire. Piggybacking on the eventual release of Huckabee's own book, yet without specific knowledge of its contents, the book portrays itself as the candid first-person memoir of Mike Huckleberry, 
who is called by God to run for president to rescue America from its current death spiral into religious, moral, economic, and racial decay. The book could have been written by Huckabee himself, or Stephen Colbert. And that's where much of the problem is. Although I'm hesitant to make huge generalizations, satire as a mode of critique functions through exaggeration. That's what makes it compelling on various levels. But what does it say about our current system when satire is no longer an exaggeration, but the actual substance of political speech? At the very least, it shows that what passes for politics these days is often little more than a self-serving farce. A farce that, moreover, trades in the most simplistic stereotypes, not only of its opponents, but its intended audience as well. Although I'm squarely in Huckabee's Bubbleville, I know quite a few people in Bubbaville. I'd be surprised if they recognized themselves in this book, and I'd be shocked if it has much traction in the long run. If there is one upshot of God, Guns, Grits, and Gravy, then, it's that it should seal Huckabee's fate as a failed candidate, yet again. Thank God for that. Hollis Phelps is assistant professor of religion at Mount Olive College in Mount Olive, North Carolina. He's the author of Alain Badu, Between Theology and Anti-Theology, published by Acumen Press in 2013. He reviewed the forthcoming book God, Guns, Grits, and Gravy by Mike Huckabee. This piece originally appeared in Mo- This piece originally appeared in modified form as an article on truthout.org. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at the studios of KWAM News Talk 990 in Memphis, Tennessee. KWAM is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop and in Mount Olive, North Carolina. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Jeff Krause engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenock. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash ThingsNotSeenRadio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.